So we return this morning to our study of Mark's gospel. I am so very thankful for Pastor Kyle and the job he did and stepping in over these last two weeks as he preached to us to the epistles, to the Hebrews, and then to the Ephesians. Before we dive back into Mark, I thought it might be a good idea for us to just regather our bearings a little bit. See, for two and a half years, Jesus has preached one very consistent message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That message may seem very clear to those of us standing on this side of the cross, although I would argue it would be heartbreaking for us to find out just how few people who call themselves Christian have any real idea what it means for the kingdom of God to come. How few people who call themselves Christians have any idea what it means to truly repent and believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel. But as clear as that message may seem to those of us sitting here in this room this morning, for the first century Jewish man, woman, and child, the preaching of Jesus would have come with great difficulty. You see, for centuries, these people had looked for the kingdom of heaven to come. They had waited for centuries to God to send his chosen his anointed representative, the Messiah, to come, much like the prophets and the priests and the kings of old, someone that would come in great power and might, someone that would come and restore Israel to her proper place, someone that would come and destroy God's enemies and the enemies of God's people, restoring in Israel an everlasting kingdom with power and wealth and wisdom, the likes of which this world had never seen. And so for centuries they had waited for this day, And yet when Jesus came, having no political power, having no earthly wealth, not calling an army to himself, seeming to have no interest in overthrowing the Romans, they thought to themselves, surely this can't be it. You see, for the first century Jewish people, much like most of the world today, they had no idea what their real problem was. They thought the problem was out there somewhere. It was the sins of others. It was the crummy circumstances in their lives. It was all the bad things that other people had done to them. Sure, nobody's perfect. But if you could just clean up around the edges a bit, just a few new rules, just some different thoughts, just kind of trim the fat off the edges, then surely God must look upon us with favor. Surely God would bless us. He would make certain that there was no discomfort in this life, that we had health and that we had wealth, that truly this place would become heaven on earth. But what God had been making clear since the very beginning Since the Garden of Eden, since the temptation of the enemy, and since the fall of man, what God had been making clear is that the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't the sins of others. The problem isn't the Romans. The problem isn't the unclean outsiders. The problem isn't even a bunch of external things that you do. The problem is you. The problem is within you. It is your filthy hearts. It is your selfishness. It is that wretchedness that brims up from within you, giving birth to selfish pride and to rebellion. That is the problem. And more than that, you haven't just broken the law, you have rejected the lawgiver. You have shown hatred for the God of the universe because you wish to be God yourself. Your sins, they weren't against some impersonable, impersonal cosmic force. They were against your very creator. You have sinned against the one who has created you and he is offended. Therefore, you are hopelessly separated from him because the God of the universe, he simply cannot look past your sin. He is infinitely holy. He is unendingly righteousness. He cannot overlook. He cannot ignore your sin. As the just 
judge of the universe, God must deal with every single sin, every single last ounce of rebellion that springs forth from your heart in this earth. Proverbs 17, 15 tells us in part that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Do you see this? That the God of the universe who knows everything, who sees everything, who knows even your deepest and your darkest secrets, he knows your every last sin, and he cannot merely turn his face away and pretend as if it was not there. He cannot turn away and simply overlook as if these sins had never happened. To do so would make him the very thing that he hates, an unjust judge, an unrighteous abomination. This is the tension that God's people should have seen building, that we should see building all throughout the Old Testament. As the evil of men, as the depravity and the wretchedness of men are on full display, and yet at the same time the God of the universe declares his loving kindness, declares his desire to bless those that are his. How? How can he do this? How can he be both a just judge and one who loves, who blesses, who spares the sinful men and women who spit in his face, who spurn his authority, who revel in our rebellion? Don't miss this. You see, the people of Israel, they longed for the day of the Lord, that day when he would come in power and in judgment, fully expecting because they were born to the right families, because they went to the right synagogues, because they followed the right rules, because they said the right prayer, because they walked down the right aisle, because they belonged to the right church, because they taught the right Sunday school class, fully believing that when God showed his face, surely he must smile upon them. They were the chosen. They were God's people. They were the insiders. Surely God was going to bless them when he came. They were so consumed by external ordinances, by their bloodlines, by their traditions and the teachings of men, they thought surely that the coming of the day of the Lord would mean eternal blessing for them. And so they cried out, God, when will you come and destroy your enemies? When will you come and wipe out all those that have rebelled against you, having no clue that apart from some supernatural work of God, unless God did something to break down the barrier that existed between him and all of mankind, they were the enemies. There's no one left for God to bless. When God comes, he must destroy everyone. Jews, Gentiles, Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Mormons, Everyone, he must destroy them all because there is none righteous, there is not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They cried for justice, having no idea how desperately they needed mercy. No idea how desperately they needed the grace of God. And so when Jesus came, calling men to turn away from the God of self and trust in him completely and totally, to trust in him, they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Despite the law, despite the prophets, despite the priests, despite the sacrifices, despite all the signs and shadows and pictures pointing forward to this day, they simply could not understand who Jesus was. They could not receive and believe his message, and so they completely missed it. And yet, as an act of grace, as an act of love and mercy, Jesus did mighty works. As a proof of his identity and as evidence that his message was true, he would heal the sick He would feed men by the thousands. He would cast out demons. He even raised the dead. Jesus did and said things that only God could do. He made clear, not only am I the promised Messiah, but I am the very Son of God. I am God himself. But for the vast majority of the people, because of the hardness of their hearts, because having eyes they could not see, because having ears they could not hear, despite all of the evidence, because Jesus did not meet their expectations, 
because he did not come with political might, because he did not come swinging the sword of his wrath. Despite all the evidence, they could not believe, they would not believe. Some people, they walked away unimpressed. Other people, they called him a blasphemer, determined he was possessed by a demon and went out and plotted his murder. So the time for Jesus' public ministry had come to an end. No longer would he focus on the crowd. No longer would he focus on the masses. For the six months which remained, Jesus would focus specifically, specifically on bringing those that God had brought to faith to a deeper understanding of what lied ahead. He was preparing them, making certain that they understood what awaited them in Jerusalem, what awaited him in Jerusalem, and what it meant for them to take this message of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And so, as a preparation for this, he left Galilee, and he went a little bit further north in the Caesarea Philippi. There he took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He took them up onto a high mountain, and there he revealed to them. He revealed to them visibly what the Holy Spirit had already revealed to their eyes of faith. He pulled back the veil to his humanity, pulled back the curtain, and he revealed to them the glory that had always been his. And the men were rightfully shook. They fell to their faces in fear. They knew that they were sinful men standing before the holy God. But Jesus commanded them to keep what they had seen to themselves. So as they came back down that mountain, they found there the crowds yet again waiting on them. Those that had openly oppressed, those that had openly come against, Jesus and his followers, they were there, and they were arguing with his other followers. You see, a father had brought his son. The son had been possessed with an unclean spirit, showing signs of epilepsy. The demon had sought to destroy the boy and his family. And yet the disciples could do nothing about it because they tried to deal with it in their own power. Rather than turning to God in faithful prayer, rather than seeking the power of God to deal with this problem that only he could deal with, they tried to deal with it in their own power, and so they were helpless. So Jesus, calling the man and his boy aside with but a command, he cast the demon from the boy and set him free. The disciples still had much to learn, despite the fact that they had been brought to faith, to trust, to an understanding of who Jesus is, they still did not understand his mission, and they still did not understand what it meant to faithfully follow after him. So with that, would you stand to your feet, please? So we turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. We'll begin verse, reading in verse 30. We'll go down through verse 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, how could sinful rebels like us possibly understand the glories of your word? How could men with hearts and minds so fixed on the God of self possibly understand the glorious word of the God of the universe. We cannot unless you do what only you can do. Enlighten our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. That is our deepest prayer this morning, Father, that we would see and know and understand and obey you, our creator, our God our master. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So it began like this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. We see again that Jesus and his disciples, they're in the far northern, port, northern portion of Israel. This is Caesarea Philippi. 
at the base of Mount Hermon. This is as far north as you can travel while still remaining within the boundaries of the traditional promised land. Now, Jesus had spent most of his earthly ministry in and around the region of Galilee up north. He had avoided the southern region of Judea, the religious center, including Jerusalem and the temple there, because there in the north, he could move about with a bit, bit more freedom. He ensured that there he could teach and preach and act and work away from the prying eyes of the political center, away from the political leaders, and he could make certain that they would not seek to arrest him or to take his life one second sooner than the appointed time, but now the time had come. Now Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Now was the time to push the issue. Now was the time to press on towards the cross. And so he would not be spending any more time in the region of Galilee. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they were merely passing through. This place where Jesus had done so many mighty works, this place that had served as the home base for Jesus for most of his earthly ministry, their time had passed. They had received all that they were going to receive, and now Jesus was merely passing through. Beloved, may we be reminded, may we tremble at the realization that for Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, these towns where God had so graciously revealed himself, these towns where God had been so very good in showing himself, manifesting himself, giving evidence to Jesus Christ and to his gospel because of the hardness of their hearts, the kindness that was shown towards them would only serve to store up wrath for the day of judgment. That which was meant to bring them to belief and faith and trust and repentance, it only served to further harden them. It only left them without excuse. So Jesus would not plead with them. He was not going to do any more works. He was not going to do anything more to try and convince them of himself and his message. He was merely passing through. Beloved, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear the word of the living God. Do not handle it lightly. Do not come into this place and sit here on this morning assuming that there will always be some other opportunity. That there will always be some tomorrow when you can again hear the word of the living God, turn, repent, believe, and be saved. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear standing in this pulpit more than the voice of an ordinary man, if you hear the voice of your father calling you to him, be careful how you hear and do not harden your hearts. There may not be a tomorrow. There may not be another opportunity. For them there was not. He was passing through. And he did not want anyone to know. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples. This is an ongoing teaching. This wasn't a one-time thing. This was the continued focus of Jesus from the moment of Peter's confession all the way through the Last Supper. This was the message that he worked diligently to make certain that his disciples understood. As those entrusted with the message of the kingdom of God, these men must not, we must not miss what Jesus is preaching here. To rightly understand, to rightly receive and see and believe and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must understand this teaching right here. So Luke tells us that he began by saying, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the second recorded instance in Mark's gospel where Jesus speaks so very plainly about what awaits him there in Jerusalem. Again, the first was immediately after Peter's confession. Peter, speaking on behalf of himself and the other apostles, he confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. But Jesus' response to them was that he... The Son of God, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things. He must 
be rejected by the religious leaders. He must be killed, and after three days, he must rise again. These things must happen. This was the very purpose for his coming. This was a supernatural work by which God would glorify himself and reconcile man to himself. This was the only solution to man's ultimate problem. There is no plan B. There is no alternative. There is no other route. These things must happen. The Son of God is going to be delivered into the hands of men. We now learn that not only will Jesus suffer and be rejected, he will be delivered, handed over. Paradidomai is the word in Greek. This word in Greek. This word is key to our understanding of what happened on that day. Firstly, Jesus is making clear that this is not merely the frenzied act of an uncontrolled mob. This is something much more official. You see, when John was arrested because of his offense against Herod and against Herod's wife, we read that he was arrested. That the Baptist was paradidomai. He was handed over. He was arrested. He was locked in chains. When Jesus sent out the 12, he warned them, beware of men for they will deliver you. Paradidomai. They will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You see, what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem, this was much more than some rogue actors. This wasn't a one-off. Again, this wasn't some out-of-control mob, just a few crazies acting outside of the authority and the power of the religious and political leaders. This was an official act of judgment and execution. These men, they acted, and they spoke on behalf of the nation as a whole. They represented Israel as a whole in their rejection of Jesus. Truly, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. They rejected his gospel. They rejected his authority. They rejected him as king. Because they were so hardened and so self-focused. Because Jesus did not beat their expectations. They rejected the God of the universe himself. Paradidomai. It's used in the passive sense here. Jesus would be delivered, handed over. This was a work of evil men. But who? Who would hand Jesus over? Well, Judas for one. When the apostles are listed, he is always listed last. And he is always listed as the one who would paradidomai. The one who would betray. The one who would hand Jesus over. Selling his master for 30 pieces of silver looking for the right time to betray him. But Judas has no authority. He was an ordinary man just like the other 12. He had no authority. He had no right to do anything. And so the betrayer, he would deliver Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the whole council. He would hand them over, and there they would try him. They would find him guilty. Then they would deliver him. They would hand him over. Paradidomai. They would hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And there... Despite finding no fault in Jesus, despite finding no warrant for his death, because, because Pilate, excuse me, because Pilate feared the crowd, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him, paradidomai, he delivered him to be crucified. Despite having the power to calm the sea, despite having the authority to command the spirits, despite being the very son of God himself, through whom all things were created and by whom all things are held together, despite having the full power and authority and rights to call down legions of angels to serve and obey and fight on his behalf, Jesus Christ allowed himself to be handed over by evil men to evil men, that by the hands of those evil men they may beat, they may scourge, they may punish, and he may die. Never been a greater travesty in all the world. And he allowed these things to happen. But this cannot be all that there is. And hear me very clearly. This cannot be all that happened there. You've got to remember now, this is the event. This is the very means by which God has set out to deal with your ultimate problem. This is the very means by which God would be glorified and he would reconcile man to ourself. Man, 
But because of our filthy hearts, because of the sin that springs forth from them, because of our radical self-focus and rebellion, because of our refusal to honor and worship God, because of our failure to see in our Creator the, the most glorious, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most worthy being in all the universe, because of this, we are hopelessly separated from God. There's nothing that we can do to satisfy that anger. There's nothing that we can do to appease that wrath that the God and the hatred that he has for sin and sinners, because of this man, all of man, every man, is under the wrath of God, and this wrath must be satisfied. So think with me rationally for a moment. How does the evil actions of these wicked men, these men who paradidomized, these men who handed over and betrayed Jesus, first of all, they were merely acting in accordance with their sinful nature. They were merely displaying the depravity that had always been there in every man since Adam to you and to me. And make no mistake, we have all of us, every single one of us, we have so hated God and rejected him that we would have been there all too happy to participate in the death of his son. Do not believe that for one second, apart from the grace of God and the working from the Holy Spirit, that you are any different than Judas or Caiaphas or Pilate. In our natural state, we would have been all too happy to be crying out with the crowd, crucify him. We reject him. He is not our king. Do not think for one second that you would have been any different than him. But I do have to ask, how do the sinful actions of these sinful men, how does that eliminate our problem? How do sinful men acting in sinful ways possibly save us from the wrath of God to come? Israel's rejection of Jesus as their king it opened the door to the Gentiles that we too may hear and receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this does not satisfy the wrath of God. This sinful act by these men, if anything, this sinful act, the most sinful act in the history of the world, it should only serve to further God's wrath upon men. It will not eliminate God's wrath. It will not satisfy God's wrath. It will only elevate God's wrath. It does nothing to deal with the wrath that you and I have stored up in all eternity. Listen, the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to become a man. He had to be born, obeyed. He had to live these 30 years, fulfilling all righteousness. Every last portion of the law, representing us wholly and completely. And our part of the covenant with the living God, representing us completely, upholding that. And then, at the end of this life, as he prepared to credit as he prepared to impute to us that perfect righteousness which was his, he then took upon himself the sin, the rebellion that was ours. And the penalty for that sin includes his physical death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is our representative, as our substitute. He had to suffer and physically die. These sinful men, they would beat, they would pull out his beard, they would spit upon him, and he, they would crucify him. There he would die. Physically, Jesus would die. And this had to happen. I do not minimize that. I do not minimize or I do not overlook for one second the physical suffering and the physical death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It was necessary. As he said, this must happen. It was the only way for him to fully represent us, for him to stand in as our substitute. It was the only way for him to redeem our bodies. We are all destined to die physically as a result of sin. And unless Jesus took that flesh to the cross, we would all, at the moment of our physical death, we would be lost bodily forever. We would not be set free in this lifetime. Our bodies would not be freed, would not be redeemed. We would still be enslaved to the law. I praise God for this truth, and I do not overlook it. But here is the problem. So many preachers, they stop right there. They stand up on Easter morning, and with tears in their eyes, they go on and on about the physical tortures of the cross. They talk about the crown of thorns on his hands, 
on his head, rightfully. They talk about the nails in his hands, rightfully. They talk about the spear through his side, rightfully. They talk about all the physical anguish endured by our Lord and Savior, rightfully. But they go no further. They preach as if the wrath of God has been removed from us by nothing other than the physical death of Jesus Christ. As if the cross represents nothing more than the acts of these sinful men and taking the physical life of his son, Jesus Christ. As if God looked down from heaven, seeing the acts of these sinful men, seeing the paradidomi, seeing the handing over of his son. As if he looked down as just a passive observer. God looked down and he said, well, look, look at the awful things they're doing to my son. Well, I guess I just forgive them of all their sins then. I guess that's enough then. I guess my wrath is appeased. I guess justice has been served. I guess that I'm done. Love, this can't be it. Please hear me and hear me well. If all that happened at the cross of Jesus Christ was the physical death of Jesus Christ at the hands of sinful men, then you are still lost. God's wrath still rests upon you. There is no hope for you in eternity. You will die physically and you will stand before God in judgment. And you will have no words to utter for the sins, for the depravity, for the rebellion that has been in your heart in this life. You will owe him a debt that you cannot pay. You will be under his infinite wrath, and he will cast your soul into hell for all eternity where you will suffer in anguish, and there is no end. There is no exit. There is no mercy. For all eternity, you are still lost if all that happened at the cross was this. You will never be able to appease God. You will never be able to satisfy God for the violence that you have done him and him and his name unless there is something more represented at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank him that there is more. We thank him that at the cross it represents much more than just the handing over of Jesus by Judas to the religious leaders. That it represents much more than just the handing over by Jesus from the religious leaders to Pilate. It represents much more than just the handing over of Jesus by Pilate to those, to those soldiers where he physically suffered and died. We thank God that it was ultimately him. It was ultimately God who handed his son over on that day. As Paul writes in Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Paradidomai, gave him up. God gave up his son for us all. This is key. This is key. This is God's plan from all eternity. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, and for the first time, truly understanding what happened there at that cross. He stood up and he said this, Acts 2, 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus was delivered. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was not something that happened outside the will of God. This was not a surprise to God. This was not something outside the preordained plan of God. This was God's plan, the plan of the triune God from the very beginning of the universe. This is the way of our salvation. And make no mistake, God was active. God was active on that day. I was arrested. I was struck between the eyes. I was, it was like someone had kicked me in the chest as we came to the Lord's table last time. We look back some 700 years before this morning's text to the word of God through the prophet Isaiah. We hear, we read these words from Isaiah 53 every single time we come to the table, and yet I wanted to fall down on my face and weep. I wanted to go no further when I read his word about the Messiah in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will. Some translations have it was the delight. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. 
Hear those words. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush his son. We're so very familiar with verses 3 through 6 and all the violence done to Jesus by men as they betrayed him, as they arrested him, as they beat him, as they mocked him, as they scourged him, as they hung him there on the cross. We're so familiar with the works of men, but that we, unfortunately we lose sight. We lose the ultimate picture that it was there on the cross of Jesus Christ where his father was pleased to crush him. He suffered more than just the physical pain of the nails. Many of men have been crucified and worse. And for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, for those that enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they did so in his presence. These men, they went to the cross and worse with songs of joy and praise on their lips because the comforter was there. They were never abandoned. They were never forsaken. They praised the living God while going to be burned alive. Crucified upside down, fed to the lions. Were these men greater than Jesus? Were they more brave than he? No, because it was only him that as he hung there physically upon that cross, his father poured out upon his soul the wrath that is due every single one of his children. Jesus Christ, who has never known anything less than the perfect love and companionship and communion and fellowship within the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who had never known anything less than the perfect approval of the Father. Jesus Christ, who had known anything less than the perfect comfort of the Holy Spirit while his time was here on earth. He became the very thing that he hates. Jesus Christ hates sin more than you could possibly imagine, and he took it all upon himself. He became the very thing that he hates. The sin, the rebellion, the violence, the transgressions of those that are his. While God the Father turned his face away. Because God cannot look upon that which he hates. And his son became the very thing that he hates. God turned his face away while his son drank down the fullness of his wrath completely alone. His father turned away. He cannot look upon sin. Father turned away while he hung on that cross and drank down the fullness, abandoned, forsaken. It was the will, it was the pleasure of his father to crush him in utter darkness. All that is due us, all that is due us for our sin, the depths of hell, the infinite wrath of God due for sinful men, it was his pleasure to pour it out on his son and there was no mercy. There was no letting up. Completely and totally alone, he drank down the fullness of his father's wrath. An absolute avalanche of hatred, white hot hatred, due for sin and sinners like us, poured out on the only perfect man that had ever lived, the God man, Jesus Christ, his son. He poured it out there till there was nothing left. And he cried out in that moment, it is finished. It was only then that he gave up his spirit and died. It was only then that he would let go of this physical life. When he turned the cup over and he said, it is finished and there is nothing left for you. There is no wrath left for you as the children of the living God. Because he has consumed it all. Completely alone in darkness. As his father turned away his face. Dear friends, this is what happened at the cross. This is what Jesus was pointing to. I imagine this beautiful scene 
is Jesus and his disciples are just walking through. It's a beautiful day, and he's walking through, and he's talking to him about what, what awaits him there in, in Jerusalem. This is what was in his mind. This was the only means by which our real problem can be dealt with. This is the only means by which we can be reconciled to God. That while we may die physically, we will not suffer the torments of hell. This is the only way we can be saved, be reconciled to God. Jesus knew this, and this is what Jesus was speaking about at this day. And it was the will. It pleased the Lord. That is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E. That is Yahweh. That is not some other God. This is the living God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God the Father, it pleased him to crush his son. How could such a thing bring pleasure to God? How could he delight in crushing his son? Because it was to his ultimate glory. It was to his ultimate glory that this thing happened. It was by the cross that God could show himself both just and the justifier of sinful men. This was the only way that God could both rightly deal with the sins of men while at the same time blessing those very same men. Since the fall of man, God had been passing over the sins of the elect. Since the fall of man, we had been storing up for ourselves wrath since that very first act of rebellion. And God had been sparing sinners. God had been blessing sinful men. He had been showing mercy to the very people that had rejected, that had hated, that had spent upon, that had done violence to him and to his name. He had been showing mercy to them. And now the son glorified the father as he hung there on the cross and he satisfied all of that wrath. He took the fullness of that punishment on himself in love and obedience. This is why Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This is the only way that he could win an inheritance to himself. This is the only way that he could be awarded a people. God had determined in his sovereignty, in his perfection, he had determined it is my will that I will bestow love and grace and mercy upon sinful men. And this was the only way that thing could be happened. So it was to his ultimate glory. It pleased him to crush his son. So he could bless you despite all that you have done to him. So he could bless you despite your rebellion and your hatred towards him. Dear friends, I'm worried. I'm terrified, in fact, that the American church, we've become so familiar with the physical picture of the cross. that so many of us who call ourselves Christian. We're so familiar with the physical torture. We have preached for so long about the cross. We look at the cross. We think about the cross. We talk about the cross. We become so familiar with it that we completely take for granted what the cross was all about. That we, like the first century Israelite, we have completely lost sight of what our ultimate problem is. We have so refused to preach the truth that apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, apart from some supernatural work of God, that we are enemies of God and children of wrath. Because of that, we have no clue what happened there at Calvary. We write songs. We preach sermons. We shout praises from the rooftop. God has forgiven me. God has justified me a sinner, having no clue what that means. Having no clue the dilemma that presents to the infinitely holy God to forgive, to justify wicked, sinful men like you and me. Having no clue what it means for God to justify you, a sinner, and having even less of a clue how he did that there in Calvary. Completely missed what the cross is all about. Don't miss this. God did not merely remove your sin from you. God did not merely pass over your guilt. God did not merely ignore the things that you had done. He took them all and he laid them upon his son and then it was his pleasure to crush him. You don't understand the love of God. You can't possibly understand the love of God. Do you recognize all that he did, all that he poured out 
all that he took upon his son for the sake of his glory. God forgive us. God forgive us for the man-centered gospel we have embraced. We've turned the cross into something all about us. Something so shallow. Something so empty. Completely stripped of any power. Any ability to change our lives. God forgive us. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. When he is killed after three days, he will rise. This is the ultimate evidence, the vindication, the proof that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. As an assurance of the Father's love for the Son, as affirmation that there is no penalty left to be paid. There is no penalty left to be paid by those that come through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. As proof of all of this, as proof that the, fact that the wrath has been completely and totally satisfied, after three days, Jesus would rise again. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Of course they were afraid. They didn't understand, for one. The things they did understand terrified them. But they remembered what happened to Peter last time. As Jesus spoke very plainly about this, and Peter pulled the Lord aside and rebuked him, he compared him to Satan. Behind me, Satan, your eyes are fixed on the things of men and not the things of God. And so they wouldn't say anything. I imagine them just walking along the way. They got some questions. They're poking each other. You ask him. I ain't asking him. So Luke tells us, Luke 9, 45, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. I believe that God concealed from them the full truth of what awaited Jesus, their full ability to understand and comprehend what awaited their Lord in Jerusalem because he knew that they would not be able to take one step further if they fully understood. You see, we sit around, we act like we wish we knew the future. We act like life would be so much easier if God would just unveil to us everything that awaited. And, dear friends, these men would have been frozen in their tracks if they fully understood what the cross meant. They fully understood what following Jesus Christ meant. And, beloved, I believe that if we truly, if those of us in this room, if we truly, wholly, completely understood the level, the extent the massive nature of God's love towards us extended at the cross and his hatred towards our sin, his wrath poured out on his son because of our sins there at the cross of Jesus Christ, we would fall down on our face in this room paralyzed. We would not be able to move another step. We would be so overcome with emotion and gratitude at all that Jesus Christ became on our behalf that we would not dare return to our old life. through sobs of joy, the same time shame over how long we have disregarded this message. We would fall down on our faces in this room and we would refuse to move. Dear friends, if you understood, if we understood the depths of God's love for us exhibited there on the cross of Jesus Christ as it was his pleasure to crush his son, we would be changed. We would quit trying to earn things. We would quit trying to build things. We would quit returning to the slop that is ours. We would quit doubting our salvation. We would look to the one that had done it all and we would say, we praise you. How can we keep our mouth shut? How can we go out in the world and keep our mouth shut about this thing which we know to be true? How can we walk in this old way of life? How can we continue to be slaves to sin? How can we continue to try and earn the love of God when he has shown it on full display with his son? We wouldn't. We would be changed. 
You would turn, you would repent, you would believe, and you would be changed. You would be a slave to righteousness. So enthralled with Jesus Christ. You keep your eyes so fixed on him at all times, you'd be running into doors everywhere you walk. Sorry, I'm looking at Jesus. You would not dare look down your nose at others that come to him with piles of sin. People that walk into this room just desperate for some hope. That know God must surely hate me because I hate me. You would grab them by the shoulders and you say, no, look. Look at how much he loves you. It was his delight to crush his son so that he could bless you. So he could love you. So that he could grant you eternal life. Dear friends, we would be changed if we truly knew this. Worship would not just be a thing that we did. It wouldn't just be some songs that we sang. Church wouldn't just be a place that we came to. Dear friends, you would be changed. And that's how I know I don't understand it. Because I keep returning to that old life. I keep embracing my old sin. I keep trying to earn something in the kingdom of God. Dear friends, I'm done with this. I had two weeks to lay around. I missed you guys. I don't know if you can tell, I missed you guys. I miss standing in this place, and I miss handling the Word of God, and I miss being able to proclaim this truth. And I laid there in that bed, and I stared at the ceiling. I said, God, for what? What am I doing? What am I talking to these people about? What are we sitting in this room and doing? I think I've missed it. You tired of me telling you that? You let me be your pastor for 30 more years, I'm going to come in here 30 million more times and tell you I think I was wrong before. Because there is no end to the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ. You understand this? We'll be in heaven for a thousand years, ten thousand years, still saying, look, but there's more. Guys, God is so good. I know that there is a tone to my voice. I know that as I speak about our depravity and I speak about our wrath and I speak about our sin, that it can be harsh and you can believe that I'm angry. But, dear friends, I have more joy in my heart than you could ever possibly understand because I understand that wrath when compared to the love and the mercy and the compassion and the grace of our living God. I know how much it took for him to allow me to stand here today. Not stand here in this pulpit, but stand, but live. I know what it took for him to grant me the ability to be called his son. I know what it takes for him to grant me eternal life. Dear friends, and I am changed. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for all the times we have thrown that out as if it was just a thing. Just a thing. Just a doctrine. Just some information that men must learn. Father, we plead with you. Bring the cross into full view for us now. Show us the depth of your love for us as it pleased you to crush your son on our, on our behalf for the sake of your glory. Father, show us what it means to be a people that you not only call righteous, but that you see as righteous. We look in the mirror, Father, and we do not see righteous men, but for you, you do. You see the full righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, credited to us because he became man and took our sin upon him. We praise you for that truth. Do not allow us, Father, to leave this place unchanged. Do not allow us, Father, to leave this place believing that there is anything left to be done. Arrest us, Father. 
Hold us still in this place. Do not allow us to move until you have driven that truth into our heart. And from that place, Father, it is our desire to sing praises to you. We pray that you would be glorified by all that we sing. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.